You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Well, we got some good news out of Kansas, of all places. That good news came last week. A week. It's an eternity now. All weeks have been officially reclassified as eternities since November of 2016. The news out of Kansas happened so long ago that Kim Kardashian and Pete Davison were still together. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema were still blocking Joe Biden's agenda in the Senate. And that poor woman on Reddit had yet to find the jar under the sink where her husband was saving his semen and yet to learn what her husband had been doing with his semen throughout their marriage. You know, if someone were to run for president and her only campaign promise was to make a week a week again, I would vote for that person. Anyway, to quickly recap, last Tuesday, voters in Kansas rejected a constitutional amendment that would have made it possible for the Republicans who dominate the Kansas state legislature to ban abortion, which they can't currently do because the Kansas state constitution, according to the Kansas state Supreme Court, guarantees the right to bodily autonomy and guarantees it not just to men, but to women too, which seems crazy. Republicans thought this was a slam dunk. Put what amounts to a ban on abortion on the ballot in a red state, put it on a ballot in August during a primary election when only Republicans are up and when older people and Republicans are much more likely to vote and watch your abortion ban get approved. But Kansas voters rejected it. And they didn't just reject it, they stomped it. In a blood red state that Donald fucking Trump won by 17 points in 2020, 60% of Kansas voters in 2022 said no to banning abortion. A landslide for choice in Kansas. In addition to what that means for the women of Kansas, they can still terminate a pregnancy. Women living in states around Kansas where abortion is already banned, women in Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, Texas technically doesn't border Kansas, but it's right under that skinny part of Oklahoma. All those women living in all those states. They're still going to have to travel to get medical abortions when they need them, but not as far as they would have had to travel if Kansas had banned abortion too. That's not how things should be. Abortion should be legal and accessible everywhere for women who need abortions, for trans men and non-binary folks too. But it is a big win. And it's a big win that I didn't see coming. I got a little grief. I got a few emails from annoyed listeners and readers in Kansas who were upset that I hadn't even mentioned the upcoming vote in Kansas in the run-up to it. Plenty of time to pick apart how to build a sex room on Netflix and not a word about abortion rights in Kansas. Well, I don't want to be defensive, but in my defense, I wasn't talking about it for the same reason Emily Bazelon says she wasn't talking about it on the Slate Political Gabfest. I mean, I confess I was very surprised by this vote. I had simply looked at the fact that there were twice as many um, registered Republicans in Kansas as Democrats and assumed that this measure would pass. I thought it was hopeless. I thought it was going to pass. I was wrong. All credit goes to the organizations and individuals on the ground in Kansas who achieved this victory without much support from the podcasters. The Kansas City Star has a great write-up on how they did it. Headline, abortion rights advocates, one big in Kansas. How did they do it? New York Times, LA Times also have big write-ups about how they did it. They're worth your time. Go read them. Lots of lessons in there for pro-choice activists all over the country. But yeah, I should have said something. I should have weighed in. My apologies to listeners in Kansas that I'm only weighing in on this now which makes me think of something else I probably should have weighed in on by now already too. Birthing people, pregnant people, people who need abortions. The push by some on the left to use inclusive language, the well-intentioned push to use inclusive language when talking about abortion rights, which means, according to some people, avoiding, in reference to abortion, the word women. 
Michelle Goldberg was on Ezra Klein's podcast a few weeks ago. She was on my Sex and Politics podcast recently. But Michelle Goldberg said something on Ezra's show that really stuck with me. I mean, I can tell you that most women I know over 40 seethe at the word women being taken out of reproductive rights activism. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people about this who are just so angry about it um, because it feels to them like feminism has become another place where cisgender women are supposed to defer. But there is a sense, I think, among a lot of older women that if you can't explain the way that abortion bans are rooted in misogyny, you know, that they're rooted in the kind of fundamental desire to control women's reproduction, then it becomes very difficult to organize, right? Like some people oppress other people on the basis of their reproduction is just not really an accurate way, I think, of describing centuries of patriarchy. One of those women out there seething, one of those women over 40, Bette Midler, who got dragged all over Twitter for saying this a couple of weeks ago. Women of the world, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, our lives, and even our name. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people or menstruators and even people with vaginas. Don't let them erase you. Every human on earth owes you. It's confusing who the they's are in Bette Midler's tweet. The people stripping women of their rights, of their bodily autonomy, are not the same people out there urging all of us to avoid using the word woman in reference to abortion rights. And they so urge us because not everyone who needs an abortion is a woman. The they stripping women of their rights? Republicans. The they calling women birthing people? Not Republicans. You know, I watched the ads that the group Kansans for Constitutional Freedom put out, the advertising campaign that racked up that 60-40 win on abortion rights in Kansas, and the word woman was all over them, not erased, centered. There's a lot of talk on the left about white women and how white women vote, and white women tend to vote Republican. Not all white women, but a majority of white women. And it seems to me if there's a word or a way of putting something that causes white women, even lefty white women like Bette Midler, to seethe, maybe hammering away at that term or insisting that everyone use that term and only that term, maybe it's not good politics. I know some Republicans, women and otherwise, and the one thing every Republican I know has in common is that they are constantly scanning the horizon searching for any excuse to vote Republican. Older women, more likely to vote. Older white women, more likely to vote Republican. Seems to me, politically, at this moment, we don't want to hand them an excuse to vote Republican by insisting or even suggesting that using the term woman in reference to abortion is hateful. Now, we can and we should use inclusive language I do. Actually, I just did. I say pregnant women all the time. I've done a lot of talking on the show about abortion for years, not just lately, but a lot more lately. A lot of intros on the subject of choice and abortion and Roe and Dobbs, a lot of guests on the show talking about abortion. I say pregnant women. I say women who need abortions. I talk about women's rights. I talk about mothers. Most women who get abortions are already mothers. But I don't just say women. I add once in a while and other people who need abortions, trans men, non-binary, AFABs, agender folks. It's a conscious choice on my part. I did it, like I said, a couple of minutes ago in this intro. I was talking about the women of Kansas, the women living in nearby states. And then I said, quoting myself, abortion should be legal and accessible everywhere for women who need abortions and for trans men and non-binary folks. I think that's inclusive language. I'm pro-inclusion. I'm anti-distortion. And I think eliminating the word women, only using pregnant people, as a guest did on this late political gab fest last week, as reporters and hosts do on NPR constantly, doesn't include. It distorts. The people who are trying to ban abortion, 
they aren't after trans men or non-binary folks. They don't like trans men or non-binary folks or cis gays or immigrants or really anyone else who doesn't look just like them. The list of people the right doesn't like goes on and on, but they've been fighting abortion rights forever since long before they found out what a trans man was or a non-binary AFAB was. The fight against reproductive choice has always been about controlling women. It's the misogyny, stupid. And they will be delighted. Republican assholes will be delighted if abortion bans also harm some of the trans men and non-binary folks that they just found out about. But women are the target, and we need to use language that makes that clear. And we can, and we can do it without being exclusionary. We can and we should include. We can't and we shouldn't do the right wing the favor of obscuring their motive. They aren't attacking people, pregnant or otherwise, when they attack reproductive freedom. They're attacking women. And I know that we on the left can keep the focus on the real targets of one discriminatory law or a long discriminatory campaign because we're already doing it. Voter suppression, removing polling places from minority areas, making it harder for black people to vote, passing voter ID laws, and then making it harder for voters to get IDs. We have no problem talking about these laws, these efforts, these voter suppression campaigns as explicitly racist. The target African-American voters who overwhelmingly vote Democratic. But you know what? Some white people don't have IDs. Some white people live in areas where polling places have been yanked, shut down to prevent black people from voting. If every time we talked about voter suppression efforts and called them anti-black and racist, some lefty burst through the wall like the Kool-Aid man and said, you can't call these laws racist. You can't say black voters are the target because some white people aren't going to be able to vote too. Even though that Kool-Aid man lefty jerk would be technically right, he would be missing the point. So yeah, let's include, but let's not distort. Let's use inclusive language, but let's be strategic and proportionate. And let's be Political, because this is a political war. Because those women Goldberg was talking about, all those seething women over 40 who seethe when they hear the phrase pregnant people, which no woman in Kansas heard in the run-up to last week's vote, we need them. We need as many of their votes as we can get. And it would therefore then be politically savvy of us to be careful about when we use language that alienates those voters that we need. We're moving away from gendered language. I'm all for moving away from gendered language, but we're not going to be past it by November of this year or November of 2024. All right, coming up on today's show on the Micro and Magnum Savage Lovecasts, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and Dr. Carlton Thomas is back to answer some Follow-up questions from our listeners about the monkeypox vaccine. And on the Magnum this week, Ellen Forney, best-selling author of Marbles, joins me to talk about being bipolar, whether bipolar is a burden, and when a bipolar person should disclose their condition to a new partner. And also for Magnum subs this week, we're putting out a new sex and politics podcast. Author and historian Gareth Russell joins me to talk about his biography of Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife. It's a 500-year-old story with a lot of sex, a lot of politics, and some surprisingly contemporary themes. That's Sex and Politics, a bonus podcast we do for our Magnum subs. If you're not already a Magnum sub, you can become one today at savage.love, where you can also read my sex advice column, Savage Love. Just go to savage.love slash savage love for savage love. All right, let's get to the show. Me Undies makes feel good underpants your butt will be proud to wear and you will be proud to be seen in. They will be the most comfortable pair of underwear you will ever own. And to check it out yourself, go to meundies.com slash savage. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep, the best mattress for your individualized comfort. Right now, my listeners get up to $200 off all mattress orders at helixsleep.com slash savage. 
Support for today's show, support we are very grateful for, comes from Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk in your own home, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just click print mail and you are done. It could not be easier. And right now, use Savage for this special offer. Includes up to 55 bucks worth of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Do not wait. Go to stamps.com and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Savage. That's stamps.com. Enter S A V A G E. Hey Dan, 50 something hetero cis male living in the Midwest in an ethically non monogamous relationship, which I've been in for about five years now. Both me and my fiance have been in lifestyle for about six years. So we're each in about a year before we met. And being in the lifestyle, being a swinger, is a lifelong dream of mine. I am so excited that I made it here, finally. It's something I've wanted my whole life, and it's uh, finally come true, and I'm just having the time of my life, both as a single and now as part of a couple. It's been amazing. And so I just want to tell everybody. <laughs> and uh, just I want to normalize it, make it acceptable, uh, so much so that you know I grew up in the South in a Fairly, very conservative family, 12 years of Catholic school. I was an altar boy. But in any case, like right after I met my fiance, I was going back home and I was going to tell my mom because I just wanted to share with her. It's something awesome to me. I wanted to try to normalize it. She already knows I'm an atheist and she accepts and loves me for that. So <laughs> I think she would have been fine with it eventually or I could have smoothed it over. But when I told my fiance that I had almost told my mom, she was aghast and just couldn't believe it. And, you know, I asked her why, you know, what's the big deal? And she made a good point that it's, you know, now my mom, my conservative mom is going to think of her just about sex. And it's going to be really hard for her to have a, quote, normal relationship with my mom. And I do understand that. And I did. And so I didn't tell my mom. I kept it. Um, One of my sisters knows, actually, both of them know now, um, and they're fine with it. But now, fast forward a few years later. And my kids do know. She also didn't want to tell the kids, uh, which, again, I understood. But uh, my kids are older, and my ex was using their mom, was using our lifestyle in some custody battles we were having. And she had found, you know, some receipt when they were going through. She had a very (laughs) in-depth lawyer that figured out that we had been on a swinger cruise, and somehow she was going to try to use that. So I used that as an opportunity to... You know, tell my fiance, hey, you know, I need to get ahead of this. I can't let her use this in court and have it come out and, you know, some other way that the kids have some judge or, you know, something leaked that they know about this. So, you know, I need to tell them. And she understood. And I did. And the kids were perfectly fine. They didn't even know. They actually kind of thought it sucked that mom was uh, using this, trying to use this against me. But they felt no differently about Susie. So now we are planning to get married in. Uh, Jamaica, and it's just going to be a small wedding with my kids and then some other friends of ours. And so now I want to let them know how we met this other couple that, you know, it was a swinger event and um, that we will probably go over to Hito because they're going to stay with us a couple days and then they're going to go over to the Hito Swinger Resort. So I want to be able to tell my kids that that's where they're going and that we're going to go over and see them so they understand. Um, But my fiance is very hesitant about this. She can't quite articulate it, or I can't understand it at least. You know, it's not about her and her reputation this time. But I think she just thinks that it's just too much unnecessary information. But again, I just really want to normalize this for everybody. My kids are fine and already accepting that we're in there. Um, and I just want to expand that. And uh, But I don't know what to do. Does she, does she have a point here? Is, is me just telling them we met these swingers and we're going over to a swinger resort. Is that too much? Remember Jerry Falwell Jr.? He was the president of the uh, of Liberty University, which is a rapidly fundamentalist Christian university. He was one of the first big dudes in the evangelical right-wing Christian movement to endorse Donald fucking Trump. And famously, he, you know, got fucked out of Liberty University, literally fucked out of Liberty University out of his gig at the college that his shitty father, the Reverend Jerry Falwell, founded because he and his wife 
were in some sort of hot wife cuckold relationship. They were fucking the pool boy. The pool boy was fucking Jerry Falwell Jr.'s wife in front of him. And this didn't come as an enormous surprise because for a couple of years up to him getting caught, him getting outed, the pool boy going to the media, Falwell had been posting really weird things. Weird for, not for me, not for other people, but weird for the president of an evangelical university on Instagram that were sexual, that were kind of overtly sexual, that were, he was sharing. He was oversharing. It was TMI. And that's what tripped him up in the end was all that TMI. Now, you are not the president of an evangelical university. This probably isn't going to get you in trouble, your propensity to overshare. But let's first think about why people in their 50s start doing this. And I think there's this propensity in older folks to start oversharing about their sex lives. And we, and I'm including myself in this, this impulse to overshare because when you get into your 50s, you are perceived as less sexual, less sexually desirable, as having less sexual agency, fewer sexual opportunities. You're kind of erased. And there is this, you know, raging against the dying of the lust desire to say, no, 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 I'm still in this. I'm still, I still have agency. I'm still desirable. I think that's what Jerry Falwell Jr. was doing. You know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, people see you as sexual. They see you as desirable. They see you as in your sexual prime. You don't have to assert your desirability. You don't have to assert that you're getting it. 50s, 60s, 70s? Yeah, you kind of have to assert it. And people do. And that's what tripped Jerry Falwell Jr. up, that he was asserting that when he needed to shut the fuck up and not draw suspicion in the way that he did and in a way that eventually exploded his life. Now, again, you are not the president of an evangelical university. This probably won't get you in trouble at work. You won't lose your job, your position, your racket, right? The grift that you were engaged in for 30 fucking years like Jerry Falwell Jr. But you're going to fuck up your relationship with your fiance, you're going to normalize your way right out of this relationship if you can't listen to your fiance who is telling you to shut the fuck up. She doesn't want this shared. And I feel a little hypocritical because, you know, Terry and I are out of be, being non-monogamous, monogamish, and now polyamorous. But we did that together. I didn't run and tell my mom something that Terry wasn't comfortable with my mom knowing about us, right? You can't impose this unilaterally on your wife-to-be. If she wishes to be perceived as socially monogamous in relationships with, you know, your parents, or I guess it's too late, that ship has sailed with your kids, that's her right. And you have to respect her comfort level. And dude, what are you thinking? There's a couple coming to your wedding and you want to tell your kids, oh, by the way, we're going to be fucking them later after you guys fly home to your mom. We're going to the swingers. We're going to fuck. Why would you tell them that? Your kids, your parents, you run them on a need to know basis. They need to know the outline. They don't need to know the itinerary. They don't need to know who you're about to fuck. They know that you're not monogamous. You don't have to worry about that being leveraged against you in court or you're one of your kids getting the impression that, you know, your wife's being a little too friendly with some dude and then she's worried that your wife is cheating on you and that's a secret that she has to keep, protect you from to save your second marriage. They know. They know the outline. That's all they need to know. And it's all your wife-to-be is comfortable with them knowing. You normalize being gay by being out, right? You normalize poly, open, non-monogamous relationships by being out about them. And more and more people in open relationships are out about them. More and more straight people. It used to be that most straight people didn't know they knew anyone who was in an open relationship. They only heard about their friends who had three ways or had open relationships when they got divorced. And so there was this association between openness or three ways or swinging. And that's, you know, that's going to be the end. That's going to destroy everything because straight people only found out that their straight friends had had a three-way when their straight friends were in court getting a divorce. Less common today. The burden isn't entirely on your shoulders. More and more straight couples are out. And the important people for you to be out to, peers. Not your 
fucking kids, not necessarily your fucking mother, your peers. So yeah, this is TMI. The kids don't need to know who you're fucking, when you're fucking them. That isn't normalizing openness or non-monogamy. That's oversharing. And that's, I'm sorry, just kind of being a creep. Everyone in my life, my family members know that I'm gay and they know that Terry and I are an open relationship. I don't ring up my aunt when we're about to have a four-way, which we're not doing right now because of the monkey box, and let her know to normalize gay and open. She knows and is fine with it. So shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Don't brag to your kids. You are a man in his 50s. You're sexually desirable. You have an awesome, wonderful sex life with your fiance. We all believe you. We see you. I see you. Leave your kids the fuck out of it. And mazel tov from me and Nancy on your wedding. Hi, Dan and Nancy and the youth. I was just wondering, is it a thing for quote-unquote straight females to be attracted to gay porn or gay portrayal of relationships? I'm not sure why I'm so into it. Men, men, or women, women, regardless. There's just something about it that is so sexy. I didn't know anyone still had a hang up about this. I remember this question coming up constantly three decades ago when I started writing Savage Love, my advice column, lesbians would write in who felt weird about the fact that they watched exclusively porn uh, that was gay, that was two dudes. And sometimes, you know, women would write in, straight women would write in, and they were a little freaked out that they only watched gay dude porn as well, or lesbian porn. And occasionally I'd hear from a gay guy who wrote in, about how he liked to watch straight porn and what did that mean? He felt weird about it. You know, I never heard from straight guys who had any conflict about watching acres of lesbian porn. And it's obvious why a straight guy might like lesbian porn. There's two of what he wants. And there is that kind of straight guys, subconscious narrative or conscious narrative that what those two really want and really need and really lack right now is a dick. And so I can walk into that scene in my imagination and be the missing piece literally and be welcomed and complete the picture. But straight guys don't have any conflict about that. You shouldn't have any conflict about this. You like what you like. This speaks to some part of your erotic subconscious. I think it's easy to flip whatever it is this is speaking to you in your erotic subconscious into your erotic consciousness. There's something about non-heterosexual sex that even as a heterosexual person, arouses you. Maybe it's seeing the two dicks. Maybe it's seeing a guy get from another guy what you usually get from another guy. Maybe it frees you from the sense of sort of gendered roles, watching a, a guy get fucked in a way that watching a woman get fucked doesn't. There's all sorts of rationalizations that you can retroactively construct here to get yourself to a place where you can unselfconsciously enjoy the porn that you enjoy, or you can cut out the middle, Dan, as you already kind of have and just enjoy the porn you're enjoying. It turns you on cause it turns you on and that's fine. Tap into your inner straight guy and just feel entitled to the porn that turns you on for reasons. And I think it's really interesting that I used to get this question all the time from gay guys and lesbians and straight women, never from straight guys, and I almost never get this question anymore. Hearing your question today was like, oh yeah, I remember this one. I think that says something about uh, maybe, you know, some progress that we've managed to make around people's interests, desires, and the legitimacy of their interests and desires. And we should highlight whatever progress we're making because there's so uh, much regress going on out there right now. This is a small thing, but it's a thing. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Me Undies, famous for their buttery soft undies and bralettes. Me Undies loves podcasts just as much as you do, and we love having Me Undies on the show. Get to know the underwear brand on every podcaster's lips because they are so much more than just undies. I'm wearing my favorite t shirt, a Me Undies t shirt, right now. Everyone knows MeUndies for their super soft undies and comfy bralettes, but did you know they make other stuff too? Like durable, cushy socks that feel so good on your feet. And my personal favorite, their super stretchy loungewear that I wear whenever I can. 
Haven't been able to wear my cozy lounge pants for a couple of weeks here. Since we've been having a heat wave, I was delighted to wake up this morning and see that Seattle was back to being Seattle. It was cold. It was gray. It was misting. And I was back in my lounge pants. They also have t-shirts that make my husband look even more devastatingly attractive, shorts and rompers that add a little silky softness to your day. They even make hoodies for your dog. Everything they make available in sizes XS to 4XL, tons of colors and prints make MeUndies your destination for all things soft, cozy, and sustainable. MeUndies also makes the perfect gift for everyone in your household, your polycule, or your pack. MeUndies has a great offer for my listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you get 20% off plus free shipping and returns. To get 20% off your first order, free shipping, and 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash savage. Let them know the Lovecast sent you. Go to MeUndies.com slash savage. Hey, Dan. Mid-20s, straight, cis female from the Midwest. My relationship with my boyfriend is the healthiest relationship I've ever been in, and I really love him. My question is what about whether my boyfriend being so lax about infrequent sex is normal. We've been dating for a year, and he's in his early 30s. When we first started dating to ease the awkward stage, I'd get pretty drunk before we would do anything or have sex, and he would usually too. I remember when we first started dating thinking that even when we did have drunk sex, it was kind of infrequent, probably being like every couple of weeks. But we didn't live together, so I thought it was pretty normal. The thing that wasn't normal to me was him being okay with this. Like the guys that I've been with in the past always expected or wanted at least to do something pretty much every day. Fast forward over the next year to now, and I've quit drinking. Though we're finally having sober sex, it's still only once a week at most, and we can usually go two or three weeks without having sex. Though I'm actually fine with this because I have a fairly low sex drive to begin with, I feel like I'm doing something wrong, and it's all my fault that we don't have sex a lot, even though neither of us are doing the initiating. I've brought this up, and have been honest with my boyfriend and he says he's totally fine with how often we do it and he doesn't sit there and count the days. Even with his reassurance that he's happy, I still work myself up almost every night over whether we are or aren't going to have sex. Personally, I feel awkward with initiating, so that's why I don't do it often and truthfully, half the time, I don't even want to have sex. I don't know why he doesn't initiate so I guess I could ask him that. I've been cheated on in the past, and I think that's probably where a lot of this anxiety is coming from. My current boyfriend, though, has never given me a reason to worry or to not trust him. Should I just take his word that he's fine with our cadence and stop worrying about it? And do you have any recommendations on how I can stop worrying about it? So you were in relationships in the past where there was an imbalance in libido, where you're previous boyfriends wanted sex more often than you did and I assume attempted to initiate regularly and you had to shut them down. And that can be awkward and awful. That can also be a bit of a power trip. Do you miss that at all? I would, you know, if I was going to dig deep with you, ask you to think about that question. Was there something about your past relationships where they wanted it daily and you wanted it once a week and you shut them down all the time and it doesn't sound like you took any sadistic joy in that or really that dynamic wasn't pleasing to you, but maybe on some level you kind of missed the affirmation that came packaged with that boyfriend who wanted it from you more often than you wanted it. And now you're with somebody who only wants it as often as you do and you miss being desired as intensely as your past boyfriends desired you, even if you didn't want to go through with having sex with them as often as they wanted to have sex with you. If none of that is going on, and like I said, I didn't really pick that up in your tone or your voice or anything that you said. If none of that is going on, take the yes for an answer. Yahtzee, you found a guy who wants sex about as often as you want sex and is fine with being the initiator and you need to stop stressing yourself out going to bed every night about whether or not sex is going to happen. That seems like it may be an anxiety that's lingering in your psyche because you were in relationships before where every night when you went to bed with your past boyfriends, there was a chance that they were going to initiate sex or a likelihood that they were. And maybe you hated having to shut it down. Maybe, you know, it led to a lot of conflict and fights and feelings of inadequacy. 
And there's just this anxiousness that took root in you around bed slash sex time. And what you have to do now is just believe the man that you're with now when he tells you that once a week or once, you know, if it doesn't happen for three weeks, he's fine and let go of the anxiety. And you'll have an easier time letting go of that anxiety about past boyfriends and what bedtime meant if you wrap it around their necks and, you know, add cement shoes and throw them in the river. That anxiety isn't about your current boyfriend. That anxiety is about the boyfriends who are now out of your life. But, you know, sometimes you want to be invited to parties you'd rather not go to, but you want the invitation. You want to be wanted as a guest. And that can happen with sex too. Sometimes you want to be wanted even if you don't want to do it, but you want to feel desired. And if that's the problem here, maybe you and your boyfriend can identify that and figure out a way to thread that through your relationship without it always having to be sexual or resulting in sexual activity. Just some affirmation from him that he does desire you. And boy, when you two fuck on Saturday morning or fuck in a couple of weeks, it's going to be awesome. Get that affirmation. It might help even if it isn't the problem. We just had a heat wave here in Seattle, and boy, was I glad that we also had here in Seattle in our house our Helix mattress with their cooling technology to lay our sweaty bodies down on. It made all the difference for me and Terry. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. The Helix lineup includes 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. So how will you know which Helix mattress is the right one for you and your body? Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Then your personalized mattress is shipped right to your door free of charge, and they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. Try out your new Helix mattress to see how your body adjusts, and if you decide it's not the best fit, you're welcome to return it for a full refund. Everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. We got, at our place, a midnight luxe model with medium firmness because we tend to move around a lot at night. And again, Helix has mattresses with cooling technology that helps your body regulate your temperature, whatever the season. So Helix, right now, during this heat wave we just had, a godsend. Not only is the mattress the best I've ever slept on, but the setup was fast and easy. Helix mattresses delivered in a box straight to your door for free. Plus, Helix mattresses are American-made and come with a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And remember, you get to try it out for 100 nights, risk-free. If you don't love it, but I kind of think you will, but if you don't, for some reason, they will pick it up and give you a full refund. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows to Savage Lovecast listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash savage. Get with Helix like we got with Helix because with Helix, better sleep and cooler sleep starts now. Hi, Dana and all. I'm calling from Georgia with a question about uh, actually my relationship with my best friend. The situation is that we've been friends for, I don't know, like almost 30 years, very close, solid relationship. And one of, we're very different. But one of the things we share is all of our past relationships have been with men who have substance use disorder. So problematic pot and alcohol usage, you know, now she is in a new relationship. She got divorced in February, the weekend she got divorced, she went out to have some fun with a girlfriend. They went out of town. She had a one night stand, hooked up with a guy, caught feelings. They both caught feelings for each other. And now, you know, fast forward here in July, they're still together. You know, it's a, it's a thing. Of course, the thing is, is he is a chronic daily pot smoker and a moderate drinker. And so I have told her that she can't talk to me about him because I don't really have nice things to say about that because I think it's really dangerous. And I do see a fair amount of warning signs about this being the same relationship pattern that's been problematic for her in the past. He is a big upgrade from her ex-husband who 
it's not hard to get an upgrade from. Like her ex was a pretty big ass. So to her, it feels very amazing. And I do see how it's been healing and positive for her, but also very problematic. And I, it's hard for me to listen to it and support her without feeling like I'm encouraging it. And I, it's not something that I, I feel authentic and encouraging. So yeah, I told her, you can't talk to me about him. And she understands and she gets it. And we're pretty good. Although sometimes she comes at me with like, don't just, can you just love me and, and trust me? And I, you know, I tell her, I do, I do love and trust you, you know, and she knows I support her a thousand percent, whether or not I support this relationship or not. So my question for you is, am I being a bitchy friend by drawing this boundary and saying, I don't want to engage with you in this part of your life, which makes me sad, but like, also I feel kind of comfortable with. And two, am I being a prude about the pot thing? I mean, I smoke weed sometimes. Like, I think it can be really helpful. I, you know, I appreciate its effects in a lot of ways. But given, like, my history, it's been a firm line I've had to draw that I cannot date anybody who has substance use disorder or who is uh, not sober for the daylight hours, you know, like, who's who's high from the time they get up till the time they go to bed. Just because it's, it's too triggering for me. It's too bad. I've had too many bad experiences with men living that lifestyle. So there's something that this guy that your best friend is dating now has in common with other guys that you and your best friend have had bad experiences with. He's a daily chronic pot smoker. That's the only similarity you cite. You don't say that he's emotionally abusive. You don't say that he's unemployed or unemployable. You don't say that he's, uh, I don't know, you, you cite nothing else, just the pot smoking. And you're a pot smoker yourself, and I'm a bit of a pot smoker or pot consumer, edibler. And it's a little hard for me to land in your corner here. I think you need to give this guy a chance. It's only been six months. Not everybody who drinks has a drinking problem. Not even everyone who drinks has a couple of drinks daily, that's considered moderate drinking. I almost never have a drink. I don't like alcohol. But there are sometimes when I do have a half an edible a day and I don't think that I'm a person that your best friend, if your best friend was a hot dude, shouldn't be dating. But you have met this guy. I haven't met this guy. Maybe there are other redder green flags that are flapping in the wind here and you just didn't think to list them. Although I have to assume that if there were other resemblances to the shitty guys your best friend had been with in the past or recently divorced, that you would have enumerated them or listed them for me. So I worry that you're using pot and alcohol use as a marker here of shitty human being. And maybe that's true and it's fine. You know, there are people out there who are sober or who have had terrible experiences with people who use drugs and alcohol and make a decision for themselves that that's a deal breaker. Any drug or alcohol use is a deal breaker. And I think that is a perfectly legitimate boundary for a person to set, but it's not a boundary that you can set for a person. It's not a boundary that you can impose on your best friend. You do get to you know decide what you're going to engage with your best friend about. And you can tell your best friend that you have reservations about this guy, that you think his pot and alcohol use is a little problematic and you're just dubious about this relationship. And that's often what we rely on our friends for, is to check us at the beginning of a relationship when we may be getting carried away. That new relationship energy, the infatuation stage, you know, we need friends sometimes to point out the red flags for us because love is blind and we can't see them. But... A red flag isn't always evidence that the red army is coming in behind it. Sometimes a red flag is a false flag. A red flag says, hey, be careful, scrutinize this, think about this, examine this. What are we doing here? Who is this person? And is this evidence of some fatal flaw? And you as the best friend, get in there, point it out, listen to her when she talks about him, observe them when they're together. And if you're convinced that he is bad for your best friend, you can and should say that. 
You can also say to somebody, you know what, you know how I feel. And you know, I don't think this relationship is right for you. We've had the arguments. We've had the fights. I love you. I'm not going to argue with you about this anymore or fight with you about this anymore. You do you. You date who you want to date. You can also say, I don't want to hang out with this person, so I'm not going to see you together with them. And then be there for your friend. If it falls apart, if it turns out that you're right, but if it turns out that you're wrong and this guy is using pot the way some people use antidepressants, it's how he self-regulates and self-medicates, but he's a functioning human being and not an asshole and good for your friend, you may have to admit some point down the road that you were wrong about him. Everyone, myself included, is so stressed out right now. Trying to find new ways to bring calm into your life is crucial, especially if you're doing the heroic work of running a small business. Having to drop everything you're doing to make a run to the post office is a major pain, especially if you're not sure how much postage you need and you got to line up and you have more important things to do than line up at the post office. So stop mailing and shipping the hard way. Stamps.com with your 24-7 post office that you can access from anywhere. Stamps.com saves you time, money, and stress. For more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses. Stamps.com gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services you need right from your computer. You'll get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 30% off USPS rates and 86% off UPS. Whether you're an office sending invoices, an Etsy shop sending out your products, or a warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping a breeze. All you need is your regular computer and printer, no special supplies or equipment. Plus, Stamps.com seamlessly works with Shopify, Amazon, Etsy, eBay, and more. You'll be up and running in minutes, printing official postage for any letter, any package, and sending it anywhere you need to send it. You can even order shipping supplies through Stamps.com, including free priority mail envelopes and boxes. Don't mail and ship the hard way. Don't go to the post office ever again. Sign up with the promo code SAVAGE for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale so you'll always know the right amount of postage. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code SAVAGE. Hey, Dan. Just had a kind of quick follow-up on the most recent episode where you talked to the butt doctor. So I'm kind of trying to figure out like, uh, I know you've got a lot of things as far as what we can do right now to stop the spread. What might be kind of a follow-up for that for people that are lucky enough to get the vaccine? What should they kind of uh, be able to look forward to once they do their part? I feel like there's been some confusion about how protected you are off of one shot versus the two-shot regimen. And uh, would just love to kind of know a little bit more from someone that is more sex positive as opposed to some of the stuff out there that basically just says abstinence only forever is the way to go. So just curious to kind of see if there's something that we can look forward to maybe in the future. I know right now it's not looking so great, but I know that after uh, all this time with COVID and having to cut back and just being worried in general, like it, it started to kind of feel nice to be a little more flexible in what we were doing as a community and just would be nice to have something to look forward to again, as opposed to constant depression uh, and things just kind of getting worse. Well, we're going to bring back the butt doctor. Dr. Carlton Thomas is a Mayo Clinic trained gay gastroenterologist who practices in San Diego, became gamous on TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Carlton, who provides health information to gay by men and also men who have sex with men. Dr. Carlton, aka Butt Doctor, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Dan. So thank you so much for the convo we had before. Let's just jump into this uh, these follow-up questions. There's a two-shot vaccine for monkeypox. For people who are lucky enough to get the vaccine, what can they look forward to? How protected are you after one shot, after two shot? And can people who've gotten both their shots still get monkeypox? Great question. Right now, we don't know. To be honest, there's not a whole lot of data out there in this current situation to prove anything. With all the thousands of men who've been infected and thousands of men who've been immunized, we don't know where antibody levels are on anybody. There are older studies that we're basing things off of, though. 
There's one from 2009 that's cited in the uh, i-base.org article on monkeypox that says in H- it separates it out between HIV positive and HIV negative individuals that seven to 14 days after shot one, there's a 29% coverage. 28 days after uh, shot one, there is a 67% coverage for HIV positive folks and 83% for HIV negative. Now, granted, this is an old study from 2009. Who knows how well those people were controlled on their HIV? Who knows? But well, what, what, what does coverage mean? Coverage means context. coverage means that they have a sufficient enough level of antibodies that we uh, assume that they'll be protected against infection. So gay men who are out there getting the vaccine shouldn't be telling themselves, hey, I got the vaccine. Let's go back to the sex party right now. Right. right. It, it takes some time, takes some weeks to get up to and, and you're not at a fully protected level. It's not 100 percent immune. Nothing is 100 percent. There is no vaccine that is 100 percent. So now if it, again, you said, said shot one, shot two, this is technically guided by the FDA as a two shot series. Two weeks after the second shot, there is a 98% coverage uh, in antibody levels. So I think we have to stratify this out as good, better, best. Mm -hmm. Uh, And speaking with higher level officials, it sounds like at two weeks after your first shot, you have good, robust antibody formation. But it's better if you wait to three weeks. So the longer you wait, the the more antibody levels you have. The best case scenario is two weeks after that second shot where you have a really, really high level of immunity. A lot of us were told that it's a two-shot regimen for the monkeypox vaccine, but now some people are hearing that they can only get or only need to get one shot. Why is that? There's a couple of reasons. There is some data from 2019 uh, in a study about the same size of the small study that I quoted earlier that states that there is a pretty robust immune response at about two weeks. To the one shot. To the one shot. So with there being such limited data out there and limited vaccine availability, in order to get more people some protection, we're going with one shot giving good protection for as many people as possible. To get more people vaccinated. It makes sense. Partly vaccinated. It makes sense. Okay, so just to be clear, you know, we, we both decided we would play daddy the last time we talked and just tell people to knock it off for a bit. We're not calling for abstinence only forever. We're not calling, both of us are gay men, we're not calling for the end of gay sex here. Oh, absolutely. But there are new guidelines out from the CDC and WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, and the reaction from some segments of the gay community would make you think that the CDC was calling for the end of gay sex. They released a statement saying, I think it was WHO uh, and CDC released two statements very similar saying that gay men and bi men and men who have sex with men should temporarily consider limiting their number of sex partners. You would think that the guidelines, based on some of the reactions from who were gay men should cut off their dicks. Right. Right. And I think you and I are more extreme. We're like, hey, don't waffle about it. Just don't do it right now. You know, don't, you know, limit, definitely limit your sex partners. Don't consider limiting your sex partners. You got to be more forthright and forceful with with this information. Because if you give anybody waffle room, they'll be like, well, I considered it and I'm screwing around anyway. <laughs> that, that That's the weasel word. It's a weasel word. Gay men should consider. Right. Possibly. Maybe temporarily limiting their numbers. Like, no, right now, actually two months ago, gay men should have and should have been told by health officials to limit their number of sex partners. This was advice that gay men gave each other at the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic when we were getting no health messages from the authorities. Gay community organizations, scrappy little community organizations founded in men's living rooms, put out flyers that said you should have more sex with fewer people. That was the advice gay men gave each other at the beginning of HIV AIDS. That is the advice that we should be getting now and should have gotten from health officials immediately in May when we saw this train coming down the track. Right, exactly. The messaging has to be more clear. And we also, health officials, like like you mentioned last time about being homophobic versus homophilic, there is a level of fear of being canceled uh, just by simply giving information. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to own certain things in our community. I mean, I'm, you and I are the most sex positive people out there, I think, when it comes to the internet. But even we recognize that right now we need to own what is happening and we need to take steps to prevent uh, further damage in the community. Vaccination, waiting for that vaccine to kick in and being responsible 
during that period of time to make sure we minimize any sort of infections. Dr. Carlton Thomas, Mayo Clinic trained gastroenterologist who practices in San Diego. Follow him on TikTok and Instagram for constantly updating information about monkeypox, about where you can get vaccinated and other uh, health challenges gay by men face. You can find him on TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Carlton. Hey, Dr. Carlton, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with me again. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Hey, Dan. I am just having a conversation with my boyfriend and realized that I really should call and ask you a question. This all sort of stemmed, this question stemmed from a recent thing that happened while we were having sex. I accidentally peed on him and not like, not like a little bit of pee. It was like a full evacuation of my bladder. And I was really embarrassed and we were laughing and we showered and all of that. But then after the fact, he was like, you kind of liked it. And I swear to God, this is not a joke. This is real life. And then we started having more conversations and it turns out he's like kind of turned on by the idea of me peeing on him and even the idea of me pooping on him. And my problem with this is that I'm a giggler and this is not something that turns me on. And I think it's really cool to do something for him. Even if it doesn't turn me on, I love to turn him on, but like I'm a giggler and I don't know how to get through something like that without like laughing, you know, and, and taking us completely out of the moment. It's hard for me to even envision that happening. I got to say, I didn't see that one coming. My boyfriend asked me to poop on him. And the problem is dot, dot, dot. I'm a giggler. <laughs> see, for me, the problem would be that I don't really want to take a shit on anyone. A piss on someone that's different. You know, urine is for the most part sterile-ish. Sterile's a binary, something sterile or it's not sterile. We used to think urine was sterile. Now we know it ain't necessarily so, but yeah, it's not that bad for you. And we've had a couple of beers and it's not first thing in the morning and you didn't have asparagus for lunch. It's just so much hot and symbolically charged, erotically charged water. So I would make a distinction between peeing on your boyfriend uh, on purpose or by accident and, you know, pooping on your boyfriend. I think poop is a lot to ask of someone who isn't turned on by species. And it's wonderful that you want to do for your boyfriend the things that he wants done for and to him. GGG is wonderful, but you know, poop's always been on my list of a, a fetish too far, but I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't. And that wasn't even your question. Your question was how to conquer the giggles in a moment like that. And my advice would be not to fight them, to lean in to the giggles. Sex can sometimes be silly and you should be able to laugh at the absurdity or ridiculous of it. And as somebody who suffers from the giggles myself at times, you know that attempting to bottle it up just makes it worse. Trying not to giggle in a moment or laugh in a moment where you want to giggle or laugh just makes it worse. And so allowing yourself to giggle, maybe then you'll move through the giggles and be able to find a more kind of focused place of, you know, erotic tension and concentration that's a little sexier for him and you. But if part of the reason your boyfriend is interested in exploring, at the very least getting peed on, is the degradation or humiliation, your laughter at that moment, you laughing at your boyfriend, you know, as he lays down in the tub and you squat over him trying to take a pee, and that's all the mental images I'm going to torture myself with right now. If you laugh at him, that may make him feel more humiliated, more degraded, rather than pulling you both out of the moment, living honestly in that moment where you feel not, you know, hopefully not ridiculous yourself, but like you've been asked to do a ridiculous slash sexy slash disgusting thing and you're laughing both with and at your boyfriend at that moment, that may fuel the intensity for him. That may actually make it more of a turn off. So the giggles that you're worried about and self-conscious about, talk with your boyfriend. It may be, you know, perhaps in advance he would think it wouldn't be sexy, but in the moment, 
if that's what you're feeling in the moment, it may wind up working for him. So yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> go for number one. Uh, I'm sort of poop phobic myself. I would urge you not to go for number two, but if you do go for number two, I'm not going to knock the turd out of your hands. Just, yeah, don't, don't call with an update if you uh, wind up giving him everything he asked for. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Juji Mimi Mama tweets, the childless woman in episode 822 whose boyfriend has a kid needs to consider her legal rights. Even if they form a family unit, she has no legal parental rights without adoption. If he dies, she could lose the child she thought was hers. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. That is great advice. Second and third parent adoptions are expensive, but they're a really good idea. We don't like to think about them when we're in a relationship, a new relationship, a newly committed relationship, when there are kids involved because you'll only ever really need to exercise your rights as a legal parent if the relationship should end or if there's a death and no one wants to think about that. But we should, especially when kids who depend on us are involved. Ona Nelson tweets, potential hookup asks about STIs. Green flag. Asks about STIs and abortion. Major green flag. Asks only about abortion. Red flag. Sounds like that caller is more scared of child support payments than maternal mortality. And he'll complain the condom isn't comfy. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I think child support payments are a perfectly reasonable thing for men to be scared of. If there were better enforcement, if fewer guys got away with being deadbeat dads, maybe more men would be afraid of them and more likely than not to complain about the condom not being comfy. And finally, Gia Rose tweets at Fake Dan Savage. I wish you would get on at TikTok underscore US because there's a whole lot of bad, bad dudes on there giving horrible relationship advice. Well, there have always been bad, bad dudes out there giving terrible relationship advice. Billy fucking Graham has been writing a syndicated advice column for longer than the printing press has existed. But rest assured, I am about to get on TikTok literally any day now. The tech-savvy at-risk youth have been pushing me to get on TikTok, but it was your tweet, Gia Rose, that pushed me over the top. I mean, wherever there are bad dudes giving shitty relationship advice, I need to be there. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who tweeted or posted to your other social media, including your TikToks about the Lovecast this week. We really appreciate it. And now, listener response calls. This is a response to the caller in episode 823 that was looking for some advice on starting anal. Dan, I've been listening to you and reading your columns for many, many years, and I don't think that I have ever heard you give the advice to, instead of bending over, to lie on your back. So the way I think about it is that, you know, you're trying to shove a, a hard stick into a, a curved pole. And if you're lying down, it's, it's a lot more accommodating. I used to be somebody who absolutely hated anal and I would refuse it. But once we started this way, I, I have the greatest orgasms of my entire life. There's plenty of room to, uh, in this position to, you know, get a vibrator and, and have some fun. Um, so yeah, maybe try giving it a go on your back. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. This call is in response to the gay man who had sex with the pre-op trans man and now wants to have sex with a woman. I'm a cis woman who has sex with both women and men, including by men. And while I really respect the caller's discomfort in disclosing that he's gay, him having sex with a woman does have different implications for her in terms of risk. As you've mentioned many times, Dan, monkeypox is being spread primarily between men who have sex with men. And as another example, even though it might be an archaic rule, in the past, I've had to hold off on donating blood while dating by men. So while I think the caller doesn't need to disclose that he's only been with men, please consider maybe identifying yourself as bi for this encounter, which sounds accurate in terms of your attraction, just so that your partner understands the scope of your sexual activity and can consent. Hey, Dan. Bi trans guy here calling in response to the older gay gentleman from episode 823, 
who wants to have penetrative sex with his trans partner, but is having some difficulties. I have two possible ideas for him. First, maybe try performing penetrative vaginal sex on your partner with a toy while touching yourself or having your partner touch or use a toy on you, or take turns doing this. Second, if your partner would be willing, have him ride your dick with you on the bottom. Let him take the lead as far as foreplay, getting you worked up, etc., and once you're hard, he gets on your dick. Another variation on this could be him riding you, but with you blindfolded first. With a blindfold, when it comes time to the actual penetration, it may help you to be less in your head and to just focus on the pleasurable sensations of the moment. Good luck and have fun. You guys can do this. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? You can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us and leave us a message at 206-302-2064. It's been a busy year for the tech-savvy at-risk youth. They got on Twitter. You can follow them at Lovecast, T-S-A-R-Y. They also set up my new website, savage.love, home for all things Dan Savage, Savage Lovecast, and Savage Love. You can listen to new episodes of the Lovecast at savage.love and subscribe to the Magnum Lovecast and gift subscriptions to the Magnum Lovecast. The site is also home of my column, Savage Love, and there's merch at savage.love too. I'm currently sipping tea from my GGG mug as I record this. Head on over to savage.love, check it all out. And while you're on the internet, also head on over to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for everything you need to know about getting your short porn film five minutes or less. Doesn't have to be graphic, doesn't have to be pornographic, can also be erotica. Just has to be five minutes or less. Everything you need to know about getting your film in the Hump Film Festival at humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Ellen Forney on Twitter at Ellen underscore Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y. And of course, follow the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth on Twitter at LoveCast, T-S-A-R-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much for downloading.